Well, I hope you've made your way to uh, Luke chapter 1 this morning. We're going to start in verse number 46 and then read through the end of the chapter. When I finish the chapter, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, and you can respond, thanks be to God. Would you follow along this morning as I read from Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse number 46. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts, and he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son, and her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed. And he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, what then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet in the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, just as our Bibles are open, we ask that our hearts would be as well. We pray this morning that you would teach us and help us 
And I say help us, Father, because this passage is, is all about learning how to praise you. And yet, some of us uh, don't have hearts prepared for that this morning. There may be people here this morning who are grieving, some who are in sorrow. There are probably hearts here who are anxious or worried, and we're just not ready to praise yet. And so I ask that this morning you would use your word to really help our hearts, direct our hearts, help us to be able to grab all the cares and concerns that we have and cast our cares on you, knowing that you care for us. And that even in the midst of circumstances that might be tough this morning or suffering that causes our hearts to ache, that you would help us to see you and that we would be able to thank you and praise you. You're the God who gives and takes away. I just ask that you would help us to to be able to say, blessed be the name of the Lord. Teach us from this passage in Jesus' name, amen. I don't know if you've seen any of these little videos going around, but I imagine that all of us in this room can picture a kid getting a gift at Christmas and just going crazy over it. Have you ever seen one of those? Maybe you've seen it in person or maybe you've seen a video. I I watched this, I, I thought it was just this cute little video. It was this toddler who can't quite talk much yet, could say a few little words, you know? And they're sitting on this couch and there's this gift given by the parents and this toddler opens up this wrapped gift and it's a banana. And this toddler was so excited. They're like, they can't say the word banana quite right, but they're like, banana, banana, like this. And their feet are like kicking up and down on the couch. They're so excited. But the toddler's so small, they can't even open the banana. So they're like, open, 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 like this. And this kid is so excited. And I thought, what happened to those days? (laughs) What happened to those days? Now they throw the banana and they're like, iPod, iPod, you know, like. But here's this little kid just, just going wild over this gift. Now, I think we can all imagine that in our mind's eye, but I want to ask you something this morning. What would make you jump up and down with excitement? What would cause you to celebrate without any inhibition? Maybe you find out after multiple rounds of treatment that your loved one's cancer is finally in remission. Can you imagine what that would do to your heart? Or maybe you get word that you've just been accepted to this grad program or this professional school that you've been longing to get into. And can you imagine what that would do to your heart? Maybe you get offered a dream job or you land a big promotion. Imagine what that would do to your heart. Or perhaps you get a home pregnancy test that says you're expecting after a long, long wait. Imagine what that would do to your heart. The thing you've dreamt of This this thing you've longed for is finally coming true. And I just imagine that even in people as refined as us, we could be seen demonstrating some sort of unbridled rejoicing. Have you ever been so happy that you shouted? Have you ever done a dance for joy? Have you ever flung a hat up in the air? Have you ever broken out into some sort of a happy song? clapping your hands, stamping your feet. Can you imagine that sort 
of joy. Some of you are your like steady eddies, you know, you're like, I've never experienced that in my life. <laughs> well, just try to use your imagination because that's the vibe I want you to feel in this text right here. I mean, when Mary breaks out into song, it's like she is so excited and she is so happy and she's so overwhelmed with thankfulness that it's like a song breaks out. That's what happens here. Or Zechariah, I mean, it's like he's had this amazing joy bound up inside of him for nine months. All of a sudden, God loosens his tongue and it just comes out. You just imagine that in this text, a teenage girl named Mary bubbling over with praise. An old priest named Zechariah, you can just imagine this old guy, he's just stumbling over his words, overflowing in rejoicing, tapping his staff, throwing dignity to the wind. He doesn't care. He's so excited about the work that God has done. This morning as we look into these two songs of praise, I want you to think about whole being delight. The sort of joy and praise that takes over everything and finds its voice in music. I want you to hear their excitement in this text. And I want you to picture like this giddy, hope-filled scene of rejoicing because that's what these two songs are like. So here's how the text breaks down. The text this morning basically has three different scenes. And you see them probably in your Bible. They're marked off by little headings. Three scenes, two songs, and one central idea. And the central idea is this. Like when you leave here this morning, here's, here, here's what I hope you'll take with you. We need to praise God because he sent his rescuer his son, Jesus. And that should well up in our heart and give us cause for rejoicing. So let's look at these different scenes in this text. And let's see if we can discover some reasons why we should praise God this season. I want to begin with Mary's Magnificat. That's what it's often called. Maybe it's even like that in your Bible. Like my Bible has a little heading and that's what it says. It says, Mary's song of praise, the Magnificat. And the word Magnificat is really, a, it's a Latin term. It comes from Jerome's translation of the Bible, his Latin translation. And it's the first word in Latin of Mary's song. It means to magnify. And you see that in the opening verse, in verse number 46. And Mary said, my soul magnifies, or Magnificat. My soul magnifies the Lord. It's a term that's often used to describe Mary's song, the Magnificat. It's actually one of the most famous songs in Christian history. It was whispered in monasteries. It was chanted in cathedrals. It was sung at candlelight services. And Johann Sebastian Bach even accompanied it with trumpets and kettle drums in his rendition of Mary's Magnificat. It's, it's a beautiful song. But if you notice something, it comes from an insignificant, unimpressive, poor teenage girl. People have been singing this song for centuries, but it came from the mouth of an insignificant, poor teenage Jewish girl. She grew up under the dark oppression of Rome, under the vile cruelty of Herod. 
She felt the burden of suffering. But instead of this driving her away from the Lord, do you know what Mary did? Mary soaked up God's word. Now, there's something about the Magnificat I want you to realize. And that is when Mary begins to sing, these words don't just come out of nowhere. They come out of somewhere. Do you know where they come from? They come from these smatterings of Old Testament texts. Here is a teenage girl, and obviously it's under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But these didn't come from nowhere. They came from somewhere. They came from God's word. This teenage girl growing up under oppression in dark times in Israel didn't stray from God. Instead, she soaked up God's word. God's word dwelled richly in Mary, and we know that from her song. I wonder, have you ever been with people who seem to be able to pray God's words. I just want to know, have you ever prayed with someone and it's almost like they're praying all these different verses woven together? Let me just see, have you ever done that? There's like four people, you need to pray with people more. <laughs> pray with people who know God's word. Have you ever done that? You're like, you're with this person and they're just praying and they're actually praying God's words back to him. It's like they have such a knowledge of God's word and scripture is dwelling richly in them that they're able just to pray verses back. I mean, it's, it's, it's really encouraging, isn't it? Here's Mary, she's so overjoyed. The word of Christ dwells richly in her, like it says in Colossians 3.16, that she's able to sing it back. And I wish I could take time to just trace through all these different phrases found in the Old Testament, but it becomes this conglomeration of God's word bubbling out of her as she just praises God for what he has done. She suffered, but in her suffering, she soaked up God's word. So that when a time of joy came, what came out was not bitterness and resentment. It wasn't dark and oppressive. It was joyful and full of hope. It came from the Old Testament scriptures. And she just begins to exclaim about how great God is and exalt the Lord. And here as you look at her song, she's just like praising God. She's like, God. I just want to praise you because you see the lowly. I mean, her first movement of praise here in the song is she's just remembering how God looks down and he sees lowly people. You see that in verses 46 through 48, Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Why? Verse 48, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. Behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. It's almost like she's surprised at that. And she should be. Wow, I mean, people will call me favored. Me, the humble servant. Why? Well, because God looks on the lowly. Now, I don't know how you are with the poor, but do you glance away from them? Do you avoid eye contact, fearing that if you look at them, you might have to somehow be involved in their pitiful state. I think that happens a lot with the destitute and the suffering. It's easier to walk on the other side of the street than to walk past them and look them in the eyes. Do you remember the story of the Good Samaritan? Do you remember that one? Here's this injured, suffering person on the road, and a priest comes by and he thinks, oh, it's probably easier for me just to be on this side. A Levite starts coming up. Ooh, suffering, pain. 
I think I'll pass by on this side. It's easier for us to neglect the poor, to overlook them, to pretend we're on our phone at the stoplight, to take a different exit. It's easier to do all of that than to really see them. I love how Mary opens this up. She says, God sees us. I don't know how that strikes you this morning, but I imagine in a room this size, there are people who wonder if they're seen, like they're hurting in some way, or they're suffering in some way, or they feel ostracized, or they feel like they never fit in, or they're not sure if they have any friends, they feel poor, and they wonder if anyone sees them. And I just love the opening of this song. Here's Mary. She's just a humble, poor servant of God, this teenage girl, and she just says, I have to praise God because he sees us. He sees the lowly. He sees us in our shame. He sees us in our sickness. He sees us in our desperation. He sees us in our poverty of spirit. The opening of this praise song reminds us that we're not forgotten. We're not overlooked. We're not marginalized. We're not ignored. I mean, I don't, I don't know what kind of situation you find yourself in this season, but whatever the depths are that you're drowning in or whatever despair you feel because of the state of things in your life, know this, that God is mindful of you. Amen. Praise be to God. He looks on the humble estate of a servant. And he's not just mindful towards us. I mean, he acts mightily on our behalf. Verse 49, he who is mighty has done great things for me. When you think about Mary's life situation, it is marinated in weakness. She wasn't wealthy. She was away from home at this point in the story. She's pregnant outside of marriage. She's young. She's a nobody. She has no resources to bring to bear in her situation. She has no strength to leverage into her circumstance, but she has a powerful God. And that's what she rejoices. She's like, I just want you to imagine this. Imagine you're in a situation that you can't change at all. Imagine some despair in your life or some loss that you're going through or some sort of tragedy or, or something that's missing and you can't fix it. You can't manipulate the circumstance. You can't leverage money. You can't, you can't tell people to help. You can't do anything. It can't be changed. It's broken. It's done. It's lost. It's weak. You're desperate. Where do you go? And here's Mary. She says, I might be weak and I may have nothing, but I have a powerful God. He who is mighty has done great things for me. He's mindful of me and he he acts mightily on my behalf. He's a powerful God. I love how this passage kind of overturns the scales of value that our world has. Our world looks with favor upon the talented and the rich and the intelligent and the powerful. But what you see in this text is that God lines up next to the lowly. He works on behalf of the needy. The world only looks at status and privilege, but God looks at this nobody girl from a nowhere town and, and he visits her. He acts mightily on her behalf. And that just gives hope to us this season, doesn't it? 
I don't know if you've ever had this experience. Have you, have you ever played like a two-hand touch football, like, like a turkey bowl, like, you know, Thanksgiving, go outside, gather the family and friends, play some football. And, and if you haven't, just imagine what it would be like. You, you go out to the field, you pick two of your guests who are in college, these robust athletic college guys, you, you two guys pick teams. And the clump of people are all standing together and you're there in the crowd and they they begin to pick teams. And you try to stand a little bit taller, hoping they'll pick you. But no, they pick someone next to you. And so you move out and slide out from behind this person so you can be seen. And, and they pick someone next to you. And, and then you slide forward. You, you pretend to cough. <coughs> and, and they pick the little kid next to you. I mean, not that this has happened to me last month. But you're like, please, someone pick me. There's good news here. God doesn't just select the best and brightest. He selects people like us to show his mighty hand. In our weakness, his strength is perfected. Praise be to God, he uses poor people and weak people and helpless people to do his work. And that's what Mary's saying here. She's just overjoyed. He looks at me, he sees me, he acts mightily on my behalf. He's merciful towards me. I love this in verse 50, and then again in verse 54. Just notice the word mercy. Verse 50, his mercy is for those who fear him. From generation to generation. Look at verse 54. Verse 54, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. I was halted this past week. I'm studying this. I'm thinking about Mary singing this song. He who is mighty has done great things. Holy is his name. And I'm thinking, oh God, he's, he's all powerful. And he's, he's supremely holy. And then I thought, how would a totally powerful and perfectly pure God relate to someone like me. You ever thought about that? I mean, exclaim his power. Laud his holiness. How does an all-powerful and perfectly pure God relate to people like us? We're sinners. We're broken. We're destitute. Even this past week, we have things we're ashamed of. We regret. We wish we could do over, and we've had to confess to God. How does an all-powerful, all-holy God relate to people like us? I'm going to tell you, he relates with mercy. He's he's merciful towards us. And that just causes our hearts to give thanks. It's not about our merits, as though we could be worthy enough. It's about his mercy towards us. He who is mighty has done great things for me. Holy is his name. He's been merciful. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. It's almost as though we live in this world where all the other religions of the world frame it like this. If you're going to meet God, then the low have to ascend on high. Sinners have to become saints somehow. But here, Mary is praising God because the protocol is reversed. God who is high has become low. He who is mighty was born in a manger. The one who's holy dwells with sinners. 
He sees us in our need. He initiates our rescue. He shows mercy to people like you and me. And so in this opening section, Mary's Magnificat, she gives praise because God sees the lowly. And he doesn't just see them. He sees the lowly and he acts on behalf of the needy. So it's not just that you haven't been overlooked. I think that's important. But I would imagine that most of us would feel like that's not enough. Okay, go back to a situation where you encounter someone who's lowly, someone who's needy, someone who's poor. Maybe you stop at the base of your exit ramp off of I-15. And you see a poor person there with a, a weathered cardboard sign. And instead of pretending to be on your phone, you look at them. You give them the Dignity of personhood. You look at them and maybe you wave. Maybe you exit Macy's up at City Creek. You've got your expensive purchases in those really cool bags with handles. You exit City Creek and there you see a person wrapped in a blanket on the ground. It would be something for you to look them in the face and say hello. Maybe you go out of Walmart and there's someone ringing a bell with that red pot, the Salvation Army volunteer, and you say, hi, how are you? Merry Christmas, and you walk past. It's one thing to wave or smile or say hello, but it's another thing altogether to act on behalf of the needy. God doesn't just see us in our state of weakness, brokenness, and poverty. God acts on our behalf. And Mary praises him for it. Look at verse number 51. It's like, we're helpless, but the Lord is remembering us even though we're helpless. Verse 51, he has shown strength with his arm. He scattered the proud in the thoughts of their heart. Look at verse 54. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. He helps the helpless. Picture someone who's defenseless, someone who's, who's weak, someone who's being oppressed by a lofty enemy of some sort. And then imagine a rescuer coming in and defending the helpless. That's what Mary says has happened to her. She's been helpless. She's been weak. She's got no one. And God comes and he acts on behalf of the needy. He's, he's helping her in her helpless state. Uh, back in the... Um, I don't know, some of you can remember back this far, back in the 1990s. Yeah, way back then in the 90s, they hadn't heard that it's bad to bully, and uh, hazing was still a thing back in the 90s. I know that because I was a freshman in high school, and I was on the wrestling team. And I have vivid memories of what they did to some of these freshmen on the wrestling team. I, I clearly remember walking in to the, the room where we did our, our wrestling practice, and there's a ninth grader. He was been turned upside down and dropped into a trash can, and he can't get out. Like, his feet are kicking like this. You know, you're like, oh, boy. <laughs> he was like, welcome to the wrestling team. Uh, I remember another one. He uh, had his legs involuntarily nared with duct tape. Uh, that was not a good thing. Uh, that was another... Another one was, this is back in the 90s. I mean, it just, it was, it was rough <laughs> living back then. Another one was saran wrapped to a tree. I, he's like saran wrapped to a tree. I, what is going on here? And I was in ninth grade and I'm thinking, I'm going to be next. 
I weighed 112 pounds of pure muscle. <laughs> pure muscle. And I'm thinking, I'm, I'm going to be next. Except for the fact that my older brother was a varsity wrestling coach, or a uh, captain. He was one of the captains on the team. And I just remember that somehow it didn't happen to me. <laughs> somehow. Do you know why it didn't happen to me? It's because he came to my rescue. He helped someone who was helpless. And when I think about Mary here giving praise to God, she's like, I'm totally helpless. But he who is mighty has acted on my behalf. He's helped the needy here. And there are allusions in this text to the Exodus in the Old Testament where the, the children of Israel were helpless. They were in bondage to Egypt. And God came and he was their deliverer and he helped them. In passages like Exodus chapter 2, verse 23, it says, the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery. They cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant. He saw his people and he came to their aid. And Mary references that in her song of praise. God acts on behalf of the needy. He helps the helpless and he exalts the humble. People of low degree are lifted up. You see it in verse number 52. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones. And look what he's done. He's exalted those of humble estate. Mary wasn't famous. She wasn't wealthy. She wasn't powerful. She characterizes her own state in verse number 48 as the humble estate of a servant. Mary's situation, she was like Cinderella. She was this, this servant girl. She was of humble estate, and what happens is God dethrones the powerful, and he exalts the humble. The haughty are brought low, the humble are lifted up, and so she praises God for that. And as you fold through the pages of scripture, you find that God does that over and over again. You're thinking about people like Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel. Do you remember he stands up on this uh, wall of, of, of Babylon, and he looks over his great city, and he says, look at the city that I have built. And in that moment, do you remember, God humbles the proud. He's struck with boanthropy. He thinks he's a cow or an ox, and he grazes for seven years out in the fields. Do you remember that? Until one day, this is in Daniel chapter four, he looks up to heaven, and he says, there's a mighty God. He looks up to heaven, and he humbles himself before the one true God. The mighty are brought off of their thrones. They're brought low. And those of humble estate are exalted. I think about the Old Testament. Maybe Mary thought about this as well. Think about like people like Joseph, a slave who's imprisoned, who has nothing, and he fears God. And what happens? God exalts him to second in command of all of Egypt. He brings those in their thrones, the haughty and the proud. He brings them low, and he takes those who are of humble estate, and he, he lifts them up. These great reversals. God remembers the helpless. He exalts the humble. He feeds the hungry. Verse 53, he has filled the hungry with good things. The rich he sent away empty. The prosperous and proud are brought low. The humble and hungry are satiated. And so here she is, and she just praises God. She praises God because he sees the lowly. She praises God because he acts on behalf of the needy. All of this is rooted in this little baby that she's carrying. How is God going to see his people and act on their behalf? Well, he's going to send a son, the Messiah, 
to come. All the way back in verse 42, which Luke preached on last week. Verse 42, Elizabeth tells Mary, blessed is the fruit of your womb. How is God going to see his people and act on their behalf? It's going to be through this baby Jesus. God's indication to humanity that he sees the lowly and he remembers the forgotten and he acts on behalf of the needy. God's indication is that he sent his one and only son, Jesus. And so it fills Mary's song of praise. That's kind of the first scene, Mary's Magnificat. The next scene in the story, however, transitions and we read about John's birth. We call it John's nativitas, and that means his, his birth. It's when, it's, when, it's when Elizabeth gives birth to the son that was promised, and that's where the text goes next. In verse 57, the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. Now, the way this unfolds is Elizabeth delivers John, who we know as John the Baptist later in Scripture, but it's time for the naming of this child, and I love how this this kind of unfolds because this still happens these days. I mean, all, you young parents in here, you, you, know, you know how this works, right? People have all these great names that they want to share with you while you're expecting this child. They put the provo in provoke, especially with some of the Utah names that they suggest. You know, they whisper to you, have you heard about Tage, Glade, Janiel, Hiram, I mean, whatever they are, I don't know, there's all these Utah names. I've been thinking about your baby. This, it's always great when they come up and say, I've been thinking about your baby. And then they come up with names. Maley, Cambry, Stanley, like those cups. <laughs> Chickenly, that's because they like Chick-fil-A. I don't know, there's all these Utah names that people recommend. And, and, and they're recommending these for your kid, you know. And, and if you're polite, you kind of smile and say, thank you, we're still considering, you know, thank you. And that's kind of what happens right here. I mean, these, these people from the community, they come up to Elizabeth and they're like, we've been thinking about names. How about Zachariah? You can call him Zachy. Call him Junior. I don't know. Zach, what are they? I don't Diane, you have any nicknames for him? I mean, how did that play out? But that's what they're saying. Call him Zach. And Elizabeth, look at verse number 60. She's adamant. Verse number 60. No. He shall be called John. Now, I love this next part because they're not content. They're like, well, we're going to go up the chain of command. And so they leave Elizabeth. This is so funny. Like, they just ask her. They leave. No, he'll be called John. Well, just a minute. We're going to go appeal to Zechariah. So they leave Elizabeth behind. They go to Zechariah. They say, well, what do you think? We should call him Zechariah after you, right? 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 And he signals for a, a tablet. Do you remember? He signals for a tablet. And in verse number 63, take a look at that. Zechariah's faith, like he trusts God. The word of the Lord that came through the angel Gabriel, he, he has faith. He believes in that. And we see it here in verse number 63. He scribbles down his name is what? John. His name is John. Now, what stands out to me here is that Zechariah is going to follow God's word rather than cultural conventions. It may have been customary to name your firstborn son after the father. That may have been cultural convention, but Zechariah wasn't going to go with what culture thought. He was going to go with what God said. 
And so he stands up and says, no, his name is John. And what's interesting here is that's the moment that his tongue is loosed. You may have thought earlier, when, when, remember when he's, he's in the temple, he meets Gabriel, Gabriel gives him this word, he doesn't believe, Gabriel says, until this day, your, your tongue's going to be tied. You're not going to be able to speak. Now, most of us are thinking the day that John is born is going to be the day that he's going to be able to speak, but that's not what happened. It waited for another eight days. So John is born, and we're still waiting. Can Zechariah speak? No, he can't speak. Day one, day two, day three, day four. Not until the eighth day, all these family and friends come around, and Zechariah has an opportunity to publicly display his faith. And that moment that he says, no, my faith is in the word of God. His name is John. At that moment, his tongue is loosed. Now, I tried to think about this. What would it be like if you were, and and it seems like maybe he was struck deaf as well as mute because they have to get, um, it says in verse number 62 that they have to make signs to him. What would it be like to go for almost a year where you're mute and deaf and you don't know ASL? I mean, you don't know sign language. You're trying to just make your way through and it's very difficult. What would it have been like And what would it have been like for you at that moment? Like if you were all of a sudden able to speak and hear again, what is it that you would say? And I tried to put myself in that spot. If I I had been trapped for a year, what would I say? And I wonder if I would complain. (sighs) You wouldn't believe this year. It's been the worst year of my life. I haven't been able to speak at all. You know, like what would be the first thing that comes out after a year? Would you gripe? Would you complain? Would you have some thoughts and opinions to share? Listen, I've been thinking about this a long time, and I'm about to tell you. Would you have some built-up something that you're going to vent? I mean, what would it have been like? Almost a year, you can't do this, and all of a sudden, now you can. And that's what caught my attention when I looked at verse number 64. His mouth was open, his tongue was loosed, and he spoke. And we're waiting. What did he say? Do you see this? He spoke. Blessing God. It's almost as though God had trained Zechariah through his suffering. It's almost as though the Lord's discipline had a positive effect in Zechariah's life. He actually grew during his time of silence. I mean, the passage that came to my mind is Hebrews chapter 12, verse 11. It says this, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, It yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who are trained by it. Zechariah had been disciplined because he didn't believe his mouth was closed. But that discipline actually worked good things in his life. And I just wonder for you in your life, I wonder if suffering or perhaps the loving hand of God's discipline is at work. In those moments, are you growing near to God? Is the end of it spiritually good? That's how it was in Zechariah's life. I mean, what's been welling up here is not bitterness and resentment. What's been welling up here is actually faith and praise to God. So that when his lips are loosed, his tongue is set free, a song of praise comes to the surface. And that takes us to our last scene in this story. And that's Zechariah's Benedictus. The word benedictus is the word that describes this last song, Zechariah's song. It means blessed. 
And it comes from the opening words of his song, blessed be the Lord, verse number 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. The first words that come out of his mouth are blessings to God. His tongue is unlatched and his, his mouth is filled with praise. And it's, it's praise that's going towards God because Zechariah realizes that God rescues those who are in bondage. It's kind of like, and think about this, his mouth has been bound. And it's almost like this picture, it's now been loosed. And what is he going to say? He's going to say, listen, that's what God does. He looses people who are bound. He frees people who are imprisoned. That's this opening here. Look at verse number 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Those two words, visited and redeemed, would have reminded these Jewish saints of the work that God did in the great exodus. There are passages like Exodus chapter 13, 19. Listen to this passage. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. So before Joseph dies, he prophesies that God's going to visit the people of Israel, and they need to carry his bones out in something that's now known as the great exodus. God's going to visit his people. Or in Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 and 7, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from the slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. So here when Zechariah says God's visiting and redeeming, these people were thinking about an exodus. But it's not just the old exodus. Zechariah is talking about how there's going to be something that's new. Like Moses led people out of bondage from Egypt, so there's going to be a rescuer who delivers his people out of bondage today. Blessed be God who visits and redeems. He's raising up a deliverer who will bring about fresh redemption. Look at verse number 69. God has raised up a horn of salvation or a mighty savior for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old. Now, Zechariah is not talking about his newborn son here. He's not holding little baby Johnny and saying, look, the Lord has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David. How do we know he's not talking about his own son here? Well, it's because his son isn't from the house of David. David comes from Levi, Zechariah and John the Baptist, or David comes from Judah, Zechariah and John the Baptist come from Levi. And so he's not talking about his son here. He's talking about someone who's going to come from the line of Judah through the house of David who's going to fulfill prophecies of old, that there would be someone, 2 Samuel chapter 7, there would be someone who sits on David's throne and has an enduring kingdom. Zechariah says there's someone who's coming who's that sort of rescuer, a king who will rescue all of those who are in bondage. Who's he talking about? He's talking about the Christ child, Jesus. Jesus would visit humanity, and he would redeem them from their bondage to sin and death. The word redeem was often used in context of slavery, like 
If someone would get themselves into terrible debt, they could sell themselves into slavery, hoping that they would have kind family members who would save up money and gather it together and buy them out of slavery, or in other words, redeem them from their bondage. Here in the text, Zechariah is praising God. He's saying, God, you are raising up a mighty savior, a redeemer for your people. Now, sometimes when we think about being bought out of slavery or delivered from bondage, we think to ourselves, like the Israelites thought to themselves at the time of Jesus, well, we're not in bondage. We're not servants of anyone. My friends, do you realize that we're all in bondage? Or we once were. We're all enslaved. Or we once were. I want you to think about being enslaved to bad habits and sinful practices. Is there anything? And, and you know what? Sometimes these holiday seasons bring these out, don't they? Like when we stop being so busy, we stop being so busy, and all of a sudden we find that we're ensnared or enslaved to something. It rises to the surface in these seasons. Is there anything you wish you could stop doing, but you feel like you can't? Is there something in your life you wish you could start doing, but you feel paralyzed? Well, you're, you're enslaved. And even though you don't want to admit it, it's like there's these shameful cycles in your life that betray it. But it's not just bad behaviors that hold us in bondage, it's also death. Death itself holds us in chains. Do you realize that? It's almost like there's a lease on life and it's going to come to an expiration date. One of my kids is watching this YouTube channel by Chris Hensworth. It's a daughter. I'm not sure why. Do you know who he is? He's the Thor guy. The like huge, stacked, ripped, like me, Thor guy. It's this Chris Hensworth show. He's all about these like diets and healthy practices and the show is kind of like he wants to extend his life you know he wants to be healthy into his 90s or maybe even 100 and so he meets with all these different people who will help him with his diet or help him with his exercise and so he does some sort of a feat like he swam 200 meters in Antarctica or he had to climb a 150 meter rope or something like that I don't you're like, how do you know this, Lucas? I don't know. I've just heard, <laughs> just heard about it. But somehow all of these things are going to be like healthy practices that help him with his longevity in life. But I just sat there and I thought to myself, no, you're going to die. <laughs> that was it. Like I could tell you the end of the story. You're going to die. You can diet all you want and gym all you want, but you're going to grow old and you're going to get sick and you're going to die. And do you know why? It's because you're enchained to death. Right. You're in bondage to your sin and you're enchained to death. And these shameful deeds and these shackles of the grave characterize our existence. But what Zechariah does in this song of praise is he says, but God sends a rescuer to visit us and redeem us. Look at verse number 71. Verse 71, underline this, so that we should be saved from our enemies from the hand of all who hate us, from the hand of all our enemies. This rescuer can defeat even the worst of enemies. He can deal with sin once and for all. He can crush death to death. 
In other words, Zechariah's praise song isn't just about rescue from bondage in a general sense. Zechariah's praise song is about how God saves sinners from certain death. He takes the worst of enemies and he conquers all of them. That's what he says here. There's there's a spiritual dimension in his song. It's not just about a new social order or political system. Verse 77 puts it this way. There is a God, and this is what he's doing. He's bringing salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. And it's all because of the tender mercies, verse 78, the tender mercies of our God. Based on his mercy, not on our merit, God is going to come and conquer our greatest enemies. He's going he's to pay the sin debt that we have. And he's going to conquer death itself, offering eternal life to all who believe in his name. He'll take his spotless record and exchange it for our marred one. He'll bear the penalty that we deserve and give us a right standing before God, which we don't deserve. He'll be put out so that we can be brought in. God's light, this is what Zacharias thinks, God's light is going to shine to those in darkness. Have you felt like that? Maybe, maybe even this season, you're, you're hearing people sing and praise and rejoice, but you're kind of lost. You're in darkness. You don't know the way forward or the next step to take. You're burdened. You're ashamed. You're guilty. You don't feel close. You feel distant. If that's you, then listen to Zechariah's song. Verse 78, the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. To give peace. Look at verse 79, to guide our feet in the way of peace. What does God want to do for you this Christmas season? Well, he wants to deliver you from bondage and save you from certain death. How? Through his son, Jesus, verse 69, God has raised up a mighty savior, a horn of salvation for us this Christmas. God sent a mighty savior, his son, Jesus, and that's who we reflect on this season. Will you receive him? Will you rejoice in him with Mary and Zechariah? May our hearts be filled with praise.